0: Lord, may the spirit, same spirit who inspired scripture, take hold of preacher and hearers alike this evening. Make your word live afresh to us and give us then the grace of obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn back to page 1217 as we begin a little series in these chapters in 1 Peter. If I'd been preaching on this theme in the morning service, where on the whole we have uh, slightly more older people, let's do it carefully how we say it, Um, we might well have been uh, thinking about inheritance advice, how we manage to plan our future so that we don't give too much of our inheritance tax to the government. We do it legally, of course, and no, all the right way, but that's what people are are bothered about. For a slightly younger congregation, uh, we have other thoughts in mind. I'm most intrigued nowadays that they're asking 20-year-olds to talk about their pension schemes. I remember at the age of 50 getting an invitation to go to a pension preparation course, and I felt quite knocked that at such a young age people were worried about my pension rights. But you see, one way or another, we all care about the future and our inheritance. And the lovely thing about this letter, it begins with a promise in verse 4 of something that you can't sort out, whether you're worried about your children's inheritance or your own pension. Here's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. What a glorious inheritance that is. And it comes from the lips, of, or from the pen, of the Apostle Peter, who's writing to a church almost certainly the year AD 63 or to a group of Christians facing persecution almost certainly it was around that year that Peter himself would die a martyr's death and so when he speaks about an inheritance he's not talking vaguely and academically this is full of the idea of trials, testings, troubles, persecution it comes there already in verse 6 suffering grief in all kinds of trials that's the world uh, to which Peter is, is living, which he's living, and the people to whom he's writing. And yet he will talk, you see, in verse 3, about a living hope. That's the great theme. The name of Jesus comes four times in the first three verses, and the hope is there, whatever the circumstance may be. Now, we live in a world where, when you use the expression, what a hope, you put an exclamation mark at the end, and you mean there is no hope. Isn't that the kind of language you, we use? Uh, let me give an illustration. I s- s- sat on the cop yesterday at Hillsborough, uh, and telling, my, telling my grandchild, who'd never been on the cop before, where his father and I used to stand in the good old days. Anyway, we sat on the cop and we watched Sheffield Wednesday lose. That's not an unusual uh, activity. It was close, 4-2, and if the referee had better eyesight, we might not have lost. But there we are. These things, these things do happen. And if I were to say now, as we all do, we shall now concentrate on the league, and I might say, of course, if we do continue to do well, we actually won two games on the trot recently, give us all a heart attack. Uh, if, we, if we actually keep going as we are now, we might, one of these days, we might even at the end of this season get promotion, and you would say, what a hope! Exclamation mark! And you'd be quite right, you'd mean there isn't any hope. I did notice that Bert and Algon have kept Manchester United to a nil-nil draw. So I suppose they might uh, think that when they go to Old Trafford, they might beat them. What a hope, you will say. But the glorious thing about this living hope is we say, what a hope, and we mean it. It's a living hope. It comes from Peter, just to point out that the academic people always object to the fact that it can't possibly be Peter because it's such lovely Greek. We are snobs, aren't we? Why do you think that a a fisherman couldn't speak lovely Greek? Anyway, it's possible if you read the end of 1 Peter 5, verse 12, he has a man called Silas helping him to write. And it may well have been that Silas put Peter's uh, ungrammatical Greek into good Greek. I have no idea. But there's no doubt it comes from Peter. It's full of reminiscences. It's full of that link with the living Jesus. And so he can speak with great authority. And he speaks as an apostle in verse 1, no doubt about his authority. But later on in chapter 5, he'll talk, call himself just a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He speaks from deep experience as well as good theology. Those two must ever go together. He knew all about the grace and peace in abundance that he, the one who had his Lord down so badly, could still be used, he could never forget, he was full of the wonder of that grace and that peace. And so he writes, to whom does he write? Well, he writes to these scattered Christians in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia means nothing very much to us, you can find them in your uh, atlases, if you like, of the days of Jesus, but they were five very wealthy areas culturally and financially wealthy. Here were people who could have been doing very well, thank you. And of course, they had all kinds of religions from which to choose. Never were there more religions around than in the days of Peter and these Christians there. They could have had, for example, if they wanted, they could have uh, had the Greek gods in their kind of way. Nobody really seriously believed in, but there were Greek gods about There was the mystery cult, which was all secret and exciting. The Da Vinci Code of their day, fascinating but nonsense. And the people love mysteries. They love all that. They might have had that. They they could have had uh, Stoic philosophy. They could have animistic religion. They could have emperor worship and done well if they did. Or they could have been Jews with the purest religion. And just a few were Christians. So you could pick what religion do you want? We live in a highly religious age. I do wish people would realise that. Never was Britain more religious. Not more Christian, but more religious. And all sorts of unbelievers are extraordinarily religious. And that's the world in which this, this, to which this letter came. And there were Christians in all this lot who were scattered. That's the word in verse 1. Scattered. There's always a reason why we pick Old Testament readings. The reason I asked her to read one uh, Janet to read one Chronicles twenty nine was that there is an echo in this passage. For we read in one Chronicles twenty nine, We are aliens and strangers in your sight. Our days on earth are like a shadow. And then you notice the next phrase without hope. Isn't that strange? You see, even that glorious passage full of praise to God, he had to admit that in those days there was no real hope. They hadn't got it yet. Whereas the the praise that comes in 1 Peter is not just to God, it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And uh, Dave's reminded us, when you pray to God, you pray through Jesus. To Peter, the only God he could go to was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... There comes this word to Christians who were strangers. They were scattered. And in a way it was a fleeting life but not without hope. And he wants to challenge them about the wonder of their salvation. So that they might be able in testing days to live positively, hopefully. A great word for a new year. It is exactly 50 years ago this month that Jim Elliot and his friend gave their lives going out to preach the gospel to the Alka Indians in South America and we all know that they sang before they went we rest on thee our shield and our defender if you didn't you now know and that great phrase of Jim Elliot's which always excites me he wrote he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose and just hold that will you I hope to remind you all at the end of the sermon he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose if this inheritance this living hope is so real then if there's a sacrifice involved if the cost is great you're not a fool to live this way and why are we not fools if we're Christians? Well, because there is, in these verses, a picture of the three great tenses of salvation. It is true, you see, I can say I have been saved. I can say that I will be saved. I can say that I am being saved. And all three tenses are correct. And They're all here. I have been saved. You see, this salvation is anchored in the past. And it's anchored in the work of the Trinity. Never was I more aware of the wonder of the glory of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, than in my life and ministry today. You see, it's anchored in the past, it's the Father's work. We are, the church of Jesus is God's elect. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, verse 2. That word foreknowledge literally means foreloved. The one who loved us, the one who knew us, an intimate relationship. It depends upon that. That's where my grace and peace in abundance comes from. It's the Father's work he has chosen. Now, of course, the Bible's quite clear. Uh, The Old Testament thought of Israel as being the elect people of God. Not elect so that they could say, we are special. But so that they might be the agent of taking out the message to others, so that they might be a reflection of God in the world. So Paul says in Romans 8 that we have been chosen, foreknowledge, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, that's a challenge. If I can believe, and I do believe, that uh, before I ever chose him, he chose me, then I have comfort. I can doubt some of my reactions constantly. I can even doubt how sincere I've been at all times, but I can never doubt His choice in love, the Father's work. Now, there are some people who try to work out how you can believe in all this about predestination and foreknowledge, and you can get into a kind of nervous breakdown by trying to work it all out. But rest on the assurance that He's chosen us. In the 39 Articles of Religion, which our old prayer books used to have at the back, the 39 Articles of Religion, which I signed uh, many years ago, before I came to this church and said I believe them all, it says about predestination this, it is of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. So if you don't find the predestination of sweet... Pleasant and unspeakable comfort. You know what you are, don't you? But if you're a godly person, then it comes to you. with sweet. Why? Because it gives you the conviction that it doesn't depend upon you. But upon him, I have been saved. I haven't saved myself. Secondly, it's the Son's work. You see that, don't you? Sprinkling by his blood. In verse 2. Obedience to Jesus Christ. It all goes back, not just to God's choice before the world was, but the death of Jesus on a hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago. He died for me, his blood was shed, so that my salvation depends upon the finished sacrifice of Christ. He gave his life, and because that's how I know I shall go to heaven, because he died for me, I have peace not only sprinkled by his blood verse 3 it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead literally out of dead men it's always in the Bible a demonstration of God's great power and God's great love Roy reminded us this morning looking at Jonah uh, which is a greater miracle uh, uh, a fish swallowing a prophet or God raising Jesus from the dead. There's no doubt which is the greater miracle. And yet some will accept the greater and can't uh, swallow the fish. They, they can't accept oil. the fish swallows them, whichever way, whichever way around it is. But the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of the resurrection from the dead. And Peter did not forget, how could he, that he preached the first ever Christian sermon a few yards from the tomb of Jesus And he preached six weeks after Jesus died. This Jesus, God raised, of that we all are witnesses. So, it's anchored in the Son's work. He died in history. He rose again in history. I've been saved. But thirdly, it's the Spirit's work, you see. You notice at the end in verses 10 to 12, it talks about the Scriptures, which are always essential to our salvation. And the Spirit... Guided the prophets of old to point about Jesus and his sufferings and glory. So wonderful, even angels peered into those truths. The Spirit inspired Old Testament scripture. He led the writers along. And he also enabled, in verse 12, those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit. So that message that the Spirit had inspired in the Old Testament was taken up by Peter and others and preached and there were remarkable things that followed. And you see, it's anchored in the reality of the Spirit's inspiration, the Spirit's enabling. Oh, it goes further. Isn't that why verse 3 he talks about a new birth into a living hope? Where does that new birth come from? just glance to the end of this chapter you get a rather surprise at the end of the chapter you'll be hearing about that next week or the week after it talks in verse 23 about being born again through the living and enduring word of god so if you ask me how was i born again it was the work of the word of god and it was the work of the spirit of god and never divorce those two who've been joined together by word and spirit That truth has come home to my heart and life. So I've been saved. And Peter can write to these scattered Christians going through testing days with Nero in power. And when we think of all the evils happening in our society and our world and governments all over the world, Nero is high on the list of tyrants in world history. And Peter would die at his hand. But in the midst of all that, he could speak about being safe. Anchored, God had chosen, Christ had died, the Spirit's power had been at work. Thank God. Living hope. But not only anchored in the past, but assured in the future is where the inheritance comes from in a way. He talks about the promised land. He talks about an inheritance in verse 4 that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you just one or two thoughts on that if I may you see always in the Bible the inheritance in the Old Testament was Canaan they longed for that they were looking forward to that inheritance which God had promised a land flowing with milk and honey the old version I was a little boy I used to take things literally as a little boy and listen to scripture all about a land flowing with milk and honey I thought what a kind of sticky place it must have been to walk around in with all the milk and honey flowing down but anyway that's literalism. But it was, it was a lovely land. They looked forward to Canaan. The inheritance promised by God. Look, perish? Spoil? Fade? Have you read the story of Canaan in the Old Testament? Have you seen what happened to the Holy Land in history? Every time I hear about the sad troubles in the Holy Land. I think how, what a mess we have made of the plans and work work of God. But ultimately, the inheritance for us is not Canaan. In one sense, it isn't the Holy Land anymore. The inheritance for us is, yes, now the things we've talked about, but one day, the glory of, that's been kept for us. It's safe. It's kept. No, we can't be sure about any of our inheritance plans in this world all things are subject to change and chance and moth and rust we can make our best plans but nothing's absolutely safe but this is absolutely safe I got to warn Paul Williams that in uh, uh, our day we were twice burgled in the vicarage so you must be careful these things happen Over remember the first time we got burgled in uh, the vicarage and uh, Margaret and I got back and we, we, we saw the mess and we we naturally felt a bit Aggrieved, uh, upset, angry, all the things you go through into a burglary. And uh, then eventually we did, without being pious, we knelt and prayed and said, Well, thank you, Lord. Yes, we've lost some precious things. But they can never take away the things that really matter. And we did ha- have that moment. I have to say, the insurance was very good to us. We were actually better off afterwards than we were before, but that's, you know, <laughs> that? that's purely incidental. I'm going to But we, we, we knew what it was to have. The things of this world are not safe ever, but this inheritance is promised and is sure. Secondly, there's a promised day. I don't know about you, I want to leave heaven, in one sense, as a glorious unknown. All I know about heaven is that Jesus will be there. And I shall see him, and all the glorious words we'll look at in a moment, we, we shall see him with inexpressible joy. And there are many question marks about what it's like, how I shall relate to other people, how I shall know, how I will be known. I really don't know. And I have to say, I'm not all that bothered. I'm happy with the thought of there will be a day. What I look forward to is the other thing, the promised day. For you see, it comes out here more than once when he comes again. Salvation, verse 5, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, glory, praise and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The great day, the one certainty, when he will come again. I managed somehow to avoid watching any television over the old new year period, which kept on going over the great events of 2005. There must have been some, I suppose, but I sort of seemed to miss it. But we do spend a lot of time just at this time of the year dwelling on the things that have happened. And then, how often do we say it? We must make sure, it's a a disaster, we must make sure it will never happen again. Knowing full well that it always will. It always will and as we think of Newtac 2006 we, the, the one things, there are many things we're not at all sure about the only sure fact of my future and yours if you're a believer is that it's heaven at the end of the day and that day ushered in by the glorious return of our Lord Jesus the great Advent theme your Advent calendars have gone the Advent candles have gone but the Advent message is still there the last, the promised land of the promised day, anchored in the past, assured in the future, I have been saved, I shall be saved. It's only then that I shall be saved from the presence of sin. There will always be temptation and reality of sin till then. It's only after then that I shan't have to say the confession in my worship, for sin will have gone, assured in the future. Available in the present. There are two phrases left in verse 5. I've jumped around the passage a bit tonight. But uh, trying to get the gist of it. We've got verse 5 left. and There are two phrases aren't there. It talks about God's power. And it talks about through faith. You see those two things. Just let's deal with them for a minute or two. By God's power. Through faith. I am being saved. We notice the power. How is the power seen? Well, in verse 2, it's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's the power of God at work in my life. I have been saved through Christ's death. I am being sanctified by the Spirit at work in my life. So is every believer. But that sanctifying work of the Spirit is not a promise of an easy, wonderful drift along. For you see, it's a a protecting power, verse 5. It's a, the word shielded is a military word. It's the word that we often use when we say the benediction, the peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep our hearts and minds. Garrison, guard, shield. Uh, Do you see that lovely picture? Heaven is being kept for us, and we are being kept for heaven. Heaven is being kept, and we're being shielded. We, we don't know how much God is protecting us. There are moments when we're aware of it. But constantly he is protecting. And yet that protecting hand, that sanctifying work, will involve being purified. Your faith, verse 7, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine. When I first came to Sheffield, when we first came to Sheffield in 1968, fairly soon afterwards, we were all clergy, all taken on a tour by the uh, uh, industrial chaplaincies of some of these steelworks, and I, for the first time ever, went into a steelworks and saw... We had a lot of steelworks in those days. Things have changed since 1968, but we had to uh, see what what went on and, you know, look at this remarkable how, you know, the the kind of temperatures that this went through. I wouldn't go into detail because I've forgotten it all, but I can remember being very impressed by it. It mattered that it got the right temperature and it had to go through it. And what Peter is saying is that I should expect, because my faith is important, that it will be tested and therefore the power of God which protects allows that testing, purifying process there is no promise of an easy life and for 2006 I don't know what will happen to us a nation, a church, individually but I do know that God will be at work we were reminded this morning that though Jonah could run away from God God never ran away from Jonah he kept pursuing him kept following him. I'll never get out of his grasp through night to 2006. God's power through faith, finally. Oh yes, there will be a day, won't there? There will be a day when we shall see him as he is and we shall be filled, verse 8, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. If it's wonderful at the heights of our faith when we believe without sight, how wonderful when we can see him. Like joy, But of course it's not always like that on earth. It will be like that then. Now we live by faith. I don't know how they work these things. I noticed the other day in the paper that they prophesied how they work these things. I don't know. That the saddest day this year will be January the 23rd. I must tell Paul Williams on the day of institution it's the saddest day of the year. Not PMO for us, but... Uh, How they work it out, goodness only knows, but there you are, go for a whole... No, no, you've got to be here on January 23rd, we're going to buck the trend and make it a happy day. But no, it is for people, always, a world of, yes, joy, yes, sadness. The early Christians could rejoice, they were counted worthy to suffer, but the day of great joy is yet to be. Please don't think that if your faith isn't always triumphant and exciting, it's gone wrong. It never was with honest people, and and, and never will be. There was a time when we wrote biographies of of, of saints, we only told the good stories. As a young lad, I read the story of Hudson Taylor, the missionary, and I I thought, you know, that can't be true. And I was right, it wasn't true. Well, at least it was true, but only half the truth. And when they wrote the real story of Hudson Taylor, warts and all, the man came alive, and he became a man I wanted to follow. Uh, the saint, the plaster saint wasn't at all impressive because it wasn't real we all know these moments but thankfully there will be joy finally. in the meantime it's by faith through times of joy through times of sorrow so I come back as I finish to where I started Jim Elliot going out with those famous words he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I want you, as I finish this evening, I want you to contrast that martyrdom with the suicide bombers of our age and to see the extreme difference. Whatever the motivations of suicide bombers, and there's a strange perverse courage about it, of course there is, what are they doing? What are they giving their lives for? to kill. As many as possible. So I give my life to kill. Jim Elliot, following his saviour, gave his life to save. The difference is just eternally enormous. There is no comparison, it's only absolute contrast. But I think I want to say, If there's a strange kind of courage about the suicide bombers, what about the manifestly understandable courage that you and I ought to have when we go out to an inheritance that can never fade, with a Saviour who died and rose again for us? Why our timidity? Why our lack of confidence? well may God give us as we go forward that living hope in a minute we're going to sing the hymn and we sing the word of the hymn we have a hope that is steadfast and certain gone through the curtain and touching the throne and I'm going to pray and I'm going to sing that song as we go forward with confidence a living hope let's pray Thank you, Lord, in the midst of a world of change and chance, we do have an inheritance that is sure and real. Salvation is real and many of us, many of us, most of us rejoice in it with all our failures and frailties. Thank you that we have been saved. We are being saved and we shall be saved. May we rejoice in that and with renewed courage, being willing To give in one sense our lives. In order that we might. Enjoy the inheritance and share it with others. How we long that they too may know that living hope. That glorious inheritance. In which we rejoice tonight. Because Jesus is our King. Amen.